back in Genesis, and last week we went through an overview of the book. Um, This week we're jumping right back into this long text, and the reason why we read this long text is so much that we read this morning, uh, is it really is one story, and you don't really get the whole of it unless you see the whole thing. So it's easy to miss when we just do parts of it. Um, Let me just give you a brief background as to what we're looking at here, then I'm going to ask God's help, and then we'll jump into the text. Uh, Moses, the biblical author of Genesis, focuses, remember, his writing, the inspired writing on these four families, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, kind of in the second half of Genesis here. Um, And there's much we can learn from each of them and through what God did through them. But the ultimate reason why these four are emphasized, well, at least three of them are emphasized, and particularly Abraham and Jacob have the most emphasis, is that through them, through these families, will come the Messiah, the Christ, who will bring salvation not just for this particular family, but for all nations, all peoples, all families of the earth will be blessed through this family. And so we're seeing the tracing of where does the Christ come from, humanly speaking? Where will we identify him? How will we know it's him? And we see that through this section. So after our four-month break, we return to our study of Genesis, dropping right into the end of the Isaac Chronicles and into the beginning of the Jacob Chronicles and dropping into one of the most well-known and notorious histories in Genesis. The story of Jacob and Esau. Let's pray and ask God's help. Father, I pray that you would help me today to explain your word accurately, truthfully, and clearly from what it says, that it would not be me adding in my thoughts or my ideas that are foreign to your word, but it'd be just clear explanation and application. And I pray that those who hear would have uh, ears to hear what you have said, And we take away what you want us to take away from this text. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. This inspired history is rather long and dramatic. Um, A quick recap where we get to this point. God had called Abraham to believe a divine promise, a covenant he'd given him. It was essentially that God would bless him and his family, which coincidentally had not yet begun when he made the promise. He had no family besides his his wife, Sarah, but that there would come through them a family and that through that family all nations of the earth would experience untold blessing and then we know that is the Messiah. That's who that, what that's referring to. Well, it happens that God in his providence waits always until the last minute and his people trust in him and so when it's too late to have a child, Sarah has a child named Isaac. Name means laughter. Same thing, but not super late, but Isaac marries a beautiful, godly woman named Rebecca, and they have a, it's a match made in heaven, so to speak. It's a beautiful love story of the two of them, and she really sort of shifts, and she becomes more the matriarch. So you have an emphasis on the patriarch of Abraham, and then Rebecca is really the, the matriarch. She's usually the heroes in the stories, as opposed to Isaac, which is very interesting that God would do that. And so you have Isaac and Rebekah, and she is even front and center in this story as well. Most of the Isaac stories, Rebekah is front and center more than Isaac is. At 40 years old, 
God tells them that they're going to have a, a, a baby, a seed. They have the baby. Or they're, they're, she, I, Rebecca's pregnant, but things aren't well. She knows something's going on. Going on. So she goes and asks of the Lord, what's happening? And it feels bad in there. And he says, it is bad in there. Not in an unhealthy way, but you have twins. Congratulations. And they're battling for space in the small womb. And he says, and they will battle for space the rest of their lives. So they have these two sons. There is a firstborn, though by only minutes. And his name they call Esau because he's one of those hairy babies that sometimes you see in the hospital. Uh, he's got hair all over. And so like, let's, call him, uh, let's call him Harry. So they call him Esau. That's Hebrew meaning of that. And then it happens when he's born, Jacob, the next one, he like comes out after Esau, but he's grabbing onto his brother's heel. So like, how about we call him Jacob, which literally means heel grabber. So I've always thought I'm thinking my parents didn't name me for what I looked like or what I did when I was born. But that's why they named them this way, Esau and Jacob. And they battle. They battle a lot. Jacob being a little bit weaker than Esau. Esau was a big man, a strong man, a hunter, a skilled with a bow and a, and a weapon. And Esau, Jacob doesn't have those skills, and so Jacob uses a little bit of craftiness and cunning, and you get the idea of the older brother, little brother in the battle. And I guess I just say a side note. If you've ever experienced sibling rivalry, then you can know that that sibling rivalry is common to humanity for thousands of years, okay? We see the same sort of things that people struggle with, them struggling with thousands of years ago. There comes a point, and this is significant to our story, and we'll just jump up here for a moment. When previously in Genesis, it records this. When Esau, feeling quite strong and assured of himself, is really hungry, and he says to Jacob, ooh, I, that smells good what you've got cooking. Give it to me, I'm going to die if I don't get some, some red stuff, some red stew. And Jacob is like, yeah, you are hungry, aren't you? Hmm, it is good, it is good. Um, tell you what, you sell me, I'll trade you some red stuff for your birthright. Now the birthright was significant in their culture. The birthright is essentially, you be the boss, be the boss of the patriarchal family. Like, you're going to have control of all the wealth, all the prosperity, all the servants, all the, the financial withhold, with dealings. You will be responsible if you have the birthright. So the question is, why would Esau say, good, give me the red stuff, I'll give you a birthright? I don't think Esau ever intended to really give Jacob the birthright. After all, he's a mighty hunter. He's like, Jacob, I can tell you anything you want. You're not getting what I want. Like any older brother would say to little brother, okay, sure, whatever, we'll play your game. So he, he does. Nothing really happens with that, by the way. You can't sell your birthright. It's, it's, it's just an example of this battle. It's, it's, nothing's really being accomplished in that. But Jacob is convinced, it's mine now. So our story actually picks up several years later. It is very possible, I think likely, that Jacob and Esau are either in their 60s or their 70s when we read this account. I'm not going to bore you with the details of how I went through and tried to trace all the ages through Joseph back to find this. But that's, that's most likely how old they are. So that these guys are, are older. So our story actually starts with when they're 40 years old. And I think some more time elapses before it takes place. 
And it's interesting how Moses arranges this story, the structure of the text. You would probably not be surprised to find out, once again, it's a chiasmus or a chiasm. Um, Polystrophy, some call it. Essentially, it's this, and what I mentioned last week, all of the Torah, the Pentateuch, um, is arranged this way, in which you have two parallel ideas introducing and concluding, then each subsequent parallel idea leading to the middle idea in the text. That's how Moses arranges it literarily. And this is why we read the length of this story, is because you can see it starts with a prologue with Esau's marriage to the Canaanite women, right? The Hittites. That's how we started reading in verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he took his wives, Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, Basement, the daughter of Elon, the Hittites, and they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. And the story concludes in 28 with Esau getting married again. Because he saw in chapter 28, verse, nine, verse 8, Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. See, that's going way back to what we just read. So, he says, well, here's what I'll do. I'll make dad happy. I'll marry another wife. By the way, young people, if you get married and your parents aren't happy with the one you married, it's not usually a good idea to just add another wife to that mix or another husband to that mix, okay? That's not the idea here. But that's what he decides. And so he decides to add another wife to his already two wives, which polygamy is not condoned in the Bible. But see the, see the little difference there? He adds, he goes to the Ishmael's daughter. Now, Ishmael is, remember, the half-son of Abraham. He's halfway a part of the covenant family. And that's what it says in the text, Abraham's son. So like, here's how I'll please him. I will go and I'll, I'll find a wife that's like not a Canaanite, not a total pagan, just kind of a pagan. And that will satisfy dad. And the story is framed in that way. Now, why in the world does Moses frame the story of Jacob and Esau with Esau's marriages? Very good question. One that I'm not 100% sure as to why he does that. I have two suggestions for you to consider. One, it's a constant theme throughout the Old Testament that when God's people intermarry with the ungodly idolaters, bad things happen. Constant theme and so we see here the idea of a grief to his parents because of this marriage to those, this union of those who do not worship the true God. I think that's a constant theme. I think it's just repetitive. But I think the more significant reason in the text is if you read throughout this entire text, you find out Jacob is sort of very, is Jacob's, I mean, sorry, Isaac makes a really bad decision. We're going to get to that. Rebecca makes really bad decision. Jacob's a deceiver. And Esau stands in the text sort of as the victim of the whole thing, right? He doesn't do necessarily anything wrong in the text. And I think what Moses is doing is he's framing the story of everybody else is wrong with Esau's wrong. <laughs> now, not just wrong in what he, and how he's married, but Esau doesn't care one bit about the divine promise and covenant. That's, that's the bigger picture here. He doesn't care. If one cared about being having the birthright, the patriarchal blessing, the one whom God is going to use to bring peace to all of humanity, bring the Messiah, then you would care about that, and, and it was promised, it was said by God that it would need to be in the covenant family, that you would marry in the covenant family, which is why they send Jacob to the covenant family to get married, because he's now got the birthright. 
Esau doesn't care. So you basically have a story here, and spoiler alert, nobody's the good guy. Nobody does the right thing. Now we know a little something about that because we have experienced many things in our lives where you can say, what's the right choice? What's the right choice now? And we say, there seems to be no right choice. It seems like door one is bad, door two is bad. That's humanity. That's often the way it is. There is a hero in the story, but it's not Esau, it's not Isaac, it's not Rebekah, it's not Jacob. Table that, we'll come to that at the end. So the way this goes is then you see the next, there's six scenes that are laid out, three and three. One, two, three is the first half of the chiasm, four, five, six is the second half of the chiasm. I'll say it again because I haven't said it in a while because I've been not preaching for the last four months, but I love the scripture for its inspiration, and I, but I also love this Old Testament text because Moses is a literary genius in how he arranges things so clearly, so organized. I think God chose him for that purpose. I'm just going to walk through these six scenes and we're going to remind ourselves of the story, not going to read it again, Walk through these six scenes before we make some application and and then go our way today. Scene one opens up with Isaac old and feeling like he's dying. How old is he? He's probably, if Jacob and Esau are in their 70s, which I think they are, he's probably like 120 years old around there. Why does he think he's dying? Well, 120 years old. But it's another aspect too, he can't see. He's going blind. And generally speaking, in an ancient culture, you need your senses to live. So he's like, I'm dying. Funny thing is, he lives for about 20 more years. But he's like, I'm dying. Now it's time for me to pass on the birthright blessing, the patriarchal blessing. The patriarchal blessing, the blessing and the birthright, they are different aspects. One's legal and one's spiritual, but they're really the same thing. You couldn't have somebody have one or the other. The birthright is more the legal side of it, the patriarchal blessing is more the spiritual side of it. So I'm going to need to pass it on. So he calls his favorite son. Once again, we should be a little bothered by the fact that he has a favorite son. That's not good. That doesn't bring good results. It's going to actually come back to bite the entire nation in the stories of Joseph. Favorites are not good. But he has a favorite. His, his boy. The hairy guy, the one who's a skilled hunter and makes delicious wild game. And he says, I want him to be the patriarchal head of the family. He's going to be in charge. The problem is that God had divinely given Isaac and Rebekah the oracle that Jacob was supposed to be the head of the family when they died. Isaac knows this but he doesn't want it, so he chooses his own way. He is wrong for doing this. It's not what God had told him to do. God says this. He says, I like this better. So he calls Esau, and he wants to make him the son of blessing. Something that Esau is like, I knew it would happen. After all, I'm the alpha. So he says, let's make this official. Let's make it formal. I want one of your delicious meals before I die. Interestingly, if we were to turn back a couple pages, we'd find out 
that Isaac said his, that Esau was his favorite because he loved good food. How human of him, but how interesting that he chose a favorite son on his appetites. So Esau knows I make a mean wild goat stew. So he goes out hunting this wild goat stew, this wild game. Probably goat, because that's what Rebecca takes to fool him with. And while he's out hunting, Rebecca, she hears this, and she's like, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not what God wanted. It's not what I want. It's not what any... This is, it's supposed to be Jacob, who just so happens to be her favorite. Why was Jacob her favorite? Why? There's many reasons, perhaps, but I think the main reason is that Jacob was told, she was told by God, Jacob is going to be the covenant child, the son of blessing, the one through whom all the nations will be blessed. And she, Rebecca, in, in her actually de- devotion to the covenant of God, is like, good, I want to be on the side of God's covenant child. Yeah, but then if God said it, why does she have to make it happen? You see, Promises are meant to be received, not gained. Promises are meant to be received with open hands rather than manipulated to get into our own hands. Reminds me a little bit of um, her mother-in-law, Sarah, who did the same thing. Believing God's promise, but not believing God's timing. Not believing his ability to accomplish that. And thinking, I've got to take matters into my own hands. So that's scene two, where scene two begins. So she tells Jacob, here's what we're going to do. You're going to get that birthright. And, and she even goes so far as to say, and I don't care <clears throat> what it does to me. Fierce. She even says, if your father curses you, I will take your curse on myself. Jacob goes, sounds good, mom. But Jacob and Esau and I are polar opposites. <laughs> He's hairy, I'm smooth-skinned. And we see this happens in the, in the story. Our, their voices are different. Everything about them is different. They don't, they're not identical twins. She's like, I got a plan. You go, I'll, I'll, make the, I'll get some goats and I'll make the food. I've studied, I know exactly what your father likes. I'm gonna make beautiful dinner for him. You go and you take hair and you put it on your arms and you get your brother's clothes so it smells like him, you put that on, and your father's going blind, remember? He'll never know. We'll get it. Jacob is reluctant in our story, but not reluctant because he's like, this is wrong, Mom, we shouldn't do this. He's reluctant because he's like, I'm going to get caught, and I'm going to get no blessing in it. And that's when she says, I'll take your curse. So she sends Jacob to deceive Isaac. And he does, but the, I wish we could all read Hebrew. I say that often, I know. I wish we could all read Hebrew because the way the story slows down and the drama in it is fantastic. It comes through in the English. You see it with Esau's cry. You see it with sort of the smelling and the kissing and all that stuff. But, but in the Hebrew, it's just this like slow down and it's this play unfolding, this dramatic thing. So Jacob goes in. He says, I've got some food for you, Father, so you can bless me. And Jacob says, come near. His voice isn't quite right. Are you 
Are you Esau? Yes. Throughout the story, Isaac still is confused, right? So even to the point when he says, okay, the voice is Jacob's, but smells like Esau, and he got wild game for me. So and even, even Isaac seeks to like suss it out kind of sneakily because he's like, come near so that I may kiss you, my son. And he comes near to kiss him and, and, and Isaac goes, <laughs> like, feel his arms, okay. Get near to him. And it's just this drama playing out. And in the end, Isaac goes, it's, it's, I guess it's Esau. Even in the Hebrew, by the way, it's interesting because after uh, J- Isaac says, this doesn't seem to be him, Jacob only has one word answers. He's like, oh, <laughs> like I can't talk too much. He's going to recognize the voice. Even then, he's just like one word answers to keep it like, keep the ruse on. And he blesses him. The blessing that he gives is very similar to the blessing that God gave Abraham. There's something missing, and that is the seed blessing, which is the most significant part, which is very interesting to me. But he says, I'll give you the land and your descendants. For every tells Abraham, he tells Jacob, land is the dew of heaven, fatness of earth, grain and wine, it's yours. Great nation, bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, back in Genesis 12. And then the blessing, nations bow down to you, bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. To Abraham, he said, and you all families will be blessed, which is a reference to the Messiah. He never says that to Jacob, which is interesting. I don't know exactly why, but I think he might be holding out on his blessing a little bit. I think he's still unsure. However, when he finally blesses him before he sends him away, he gives him the full Abrahamic blessing, which includes that. But at this point, this first blessing, it seems even a little bit of a reluctant blessing he's giving because he's unsure of the situation. So the blessing is simply there. You can read it yourself. I'm not going to read it. He gives Jacob the patriarchal blessing. Jacob won. He got the blessing through deceit and manipulation. If that doesn't cause you some discomfort, then I don't think you understand the story. That should cause some discomfort, right? Like, wait, this doesn't seem right. It isn't. And we'll come to that at the end. Scene four starts the parallel down the other direction. Esau, and I love the way the text does it, it just keeps the drama high. Esau comes in, essentially, and this is proverbially speaking, this is not what the Bible says, but metaphorically speaking, whistling a happy tune. He, in fact, in the Hebrew there, it's like he's even jovial in the words he's using. My father, your son, it's just very jovial. He's, he's ready to get all the riches of Isaac. Well, what is that? Isaac did well. Abraham did well. It's a lot of stuff that he stands to gain. And in the birthright, he gets it all. His comes in and Jacob has just left the, 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 the tent. Like says scarcely he's gone and he's there. So like the tension is high. And he says, I'm here to bring you your food, father. And Isaac, you can just see it in the text. His demeanor changes. Oh, no. He knows what's happened. He knows what's happened. His suspicions are confirmed. He just blessed Jacob. He didn't get his will. What he'd planned could not come to pass. Furthermore, what's he going to do now? When, 
Esau finds out, the text says that he screamed a great cry. Now, to understand what that means, the way that sounds, it's a war cry. It's a battle cry. He is screaming. He's not, he's not screaming. It's, it's anger. And we could say, I think rightly, a bit of justified anger here. He'd been deceived. He'd been supplanted. He'd been Jacobed. And that's exactly what happens with the word heel grabber. Up until that point, in, as far as we know in Hebrew history, heel, Jacob did not mean deceiver. It became a byword for a supplanter, a deceiver. Of course, I'm jumping ahead. When Jacob is finally converted, when he is regenerated, God changes his name from deceiver to prince. But that's another story for another day. He, do you have anything for me, Father? Any blessing, anything left? Legally speaking, he had nothing. The birthright was given. This is, a legal, this is essentially signing, in, in their culture, would be the same in our culture as this, signing the will. Notarized, signed, done. Irrevocable. Jacob gets it all. Esau's weeping, angry. He says, now he's deceived me, supplanted me twice. Surely he is a Jacob, a heel grabber. The best that Isaac can do is some have called it an anti-blessing. It's not really. It reminds me a lot of the Ishmaelite blessing that Ishmael got instead of Isaac. In other words, it's going to be one where you're going to have the fatness. You're going to do well. You're going to do well, Esau. But it's going to be struggle and sorrow and difficult. And in the end, you will serve Jacob. Now, you'll throw off the yoke time and time again. You will serve him. From a historical perspective, this happens when the children of Israel, hundreds of years later, leave Egypt, and they encounter Esau's descendants, now a nation called Edom, and they go, they go to war as nations. I suppose it's a bit anticlimactic for me to share with you some good news that you can read on your own, and that is that Isaac and Jacob eventually reconcile, but not today. That's scene four. Rebecca. You see the parallel here? Now she sends Jacob somewhere else, no longer to a father. She sends Jacob to Padan Aram, where her family is from. But this time, it's not because she's trying to gain something. It's because she's trying not to lose something, her son. Because Esau has promised that as soon as the days of his, mourning his father's impending death, which again doesn't happen for another 20 years, that nobody knows that though, he's going to kill, he's going to murder his brother. And we need to understand that he will. Like that, that's, that would, if, he, if it had happened this way, he was going to. This isn't just an angry statement made. Um, everyone knows, Rebecca and Jacob especially, know that Esau means it. So Rebecca says, Let's, I'm going to send you away. She says, just for a few days, go to Padan Aram until your brother calms down a little bit. Little does she know, she will never see Jacob again. He will be a sojourner for the next couple decades 
and she will die before she ever sees her son again. Does deception pay off? She thinks she wins, but does she win? Do they win? Does Jacob win? So she sends him to Padan Aram, and before he goes, Isaac now imparts to Jacob the patriarchal part of the blessing. The birthright or the legal part was already done, and now we're going to get a patriarchal blessing. I'll just quickly read that. That's in chapter 28, verse 3, and you see the difference why one is more of a financial one, but this one's more spiritual. 28, verse 3 This is the blessing right before he leaves. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply that you may be an assembly of peoples, a nation, and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you. It's very similar to what he said to Abraham. That you may inherit the land, the place of God's presence, in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So everything that God gives to Abraham, now Jacob will have, which is also the promise of the Messiah through him. Here's the problem that we will explore throughout the Jacob Chronicles. Jacob doesn't deserve this. Jacob battles and fights to bless himself for most of the rest of his life. He does not respect God, and he does not reverence the blessing of Abraham and the blessing of the Messiah for most of his life. He will be nearly a hundred years old before he actually submits to the goodness and grace of God. He doesn't deserve this. So why in the world would God give, and it wasn't what they did that caused it. Remember, God had said that he was going to bless Jacob with this blessing before all this deception took place. Why would God choose to show such a mercy to Jacob, because God delights in demonstrating his grace to the least likely deserved people. In other words, God delights to demonstrate the riches of his grace to people like me. And that is beautiful even in the beautiful tragedy that we read. It's because of God's grace, because he says, I will have mercy on whom I should have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I should have compassion. We end up with the epilogue, Jacob fleeing to Padan Aram, And the epilogue is, once again, Esau's marriage. He's trying to fix it, and he can't. And so the story ends with discomfort, tragedy, and a little bit of a bad taste in everybody's mouth. I mean, our mouths. (laughs) Theirs too, but yeah. Just a quick note before we jump into some application. This is one of the things I love about the Bible that's unique to other religious literature is if I were writing a history, if I were writing a history about me and my, my ancestors, we'd all look pretty good. There'd be these heroes that have risen up and done great victorious things like the Epic of Gilgamesh, 
Sumerian epic, or, or, or you could just, you just, there's many of them. You'd have the good guys and the bad guys. And the good guys always do the good thing, and the bad guys always do the bad thing. You know, that simple. But you know the Bible, you know why I know it's true history? Because it actually says the truth. That at the end of the day, we're not as good as we think we are, and not everyone's as bad as they could be. We, but we are real. And I love that about the Scripture, that it reveals its history as it is. But what do we take from this? I have, before we, our text, we, when we've gone through Genesis, we talk about three different areas of application, a moral application, a theological application, a Christological application. And I think we can think through that grid as well. I think we should consider, I don't think it's the main thing, but I think we should consider the favoritism of Isaac and Rebekah to their particular sons, how that fertilized the ground for all the pain and dishonor that follows. And that ought to be a, a word to parents, ought to be a word to us who have children Think of the family conflict that ensued when parents had favorites. It will be something that will further. Jacob was benefited to be the favorite here, um, but later on when he shows favoritism to his son Joseph, he has to live with the, for most of his life, the rest of his life with the idea that his own sons murdered his favorite son. It didn't, but he thinks that. That's a, surely a lesson, something that I think God wants us to hear. I think we ought to think about the wrongness of Isaac in this account and as God's church be warned, how easy it is to let our appetites rule our decisions, especially sinful appetites. Furthermore, Isaac knew God's will for his family. He had revelation from God, the will for Jacob and Esau. But in faithlessness, Isaac decided that his will was to be preferred over God's revealed will? And do we not do that as well? We read in the word of God the truths. We want what we want more than what God wants. We should be warned of that. I think we also ought to consider the ugliness and deception by Rebecca and Jacob that led to so much pain, devastation, and eventual bloody war. Proverbs 12, says, lying lips are an abomination, and we see why lying lips hurts so much. But we also have to wrestle with this, do we not? That it does appear that Jacob and Rebekah are rewarded with victory for their deception. They won, right? Jacob gets blessed. So, situational ethics might say, so I guess the end does justify the means we might be tempted to think that way. However, I think both in the passage and, and beyond, the idea that there is nothing but devastation that follows ought to be sort of like a, a check to that, right? I mean, Rebecca's own heart is broken when she never sees her favorite or beloved son again. More than that, though, more than just the physical or, or practical effects, is God, does God give them the blessing, does God give Jacob the blessing through means of or because of their deception? Had not God declared before they were even born that Jacob would be the patriarch, the firstborn? 
would not God and could not God, and yes, I believe he, he, went, he used their sin to God's advantage, but not theirs. <laughs> In other words, he, he used their wickedness, their deception, yes, but he, this text nowhere commends them, nor does it suggest that God needed them to do this. I know this is unsaid because it's a history rather than a theoretical history. But does not God accomplish his will regardless of what we do to destroy or gain it? Is not God in the heavens and doing whatever he pleases? And so there is no justification. They didn't win it. God had already promised it. And I think they learned that lesson. I know Jacob does later in his life. As he, the grifter, gets grifted big time. And God proves that his will will be accomplished in spite of the deception by those around him. So in faithlessness, and we're going to learn this, Rebecca decided that God's promises were something to be gained through shrewd activity and careful planning, rather than a gift simply to be received through faith alone. And this has the ring of many of what we call religion today. Religion, as it's colloquially defined, is man's attempt to get God's goodness through their efforts. To get to God our way. But Christianity, Judaism as it was intended to be, is rather than to seek to get God through our efforts, even deceptive ones, it is to simply receive God's goodness by trusting his word of promise. That's what they should have done, and God would have brought about the results. It would have all still worked out the same way without all the suffering. And many today still approach God's gift of redemption this way. But we cannot boast, nor should we boast, that we have gained eternal life through our efforts because a promise is received by grace, not gained through work. Of course, we should also note the arrogance of Esau and the betrayal of Jacob, both of them. I think a psalm here is appropriate. How good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. <laughs> Would have been good and pleasant in the family. The longer we look at this account, the more troubling everyone's actions appear. And we understand even greater that if our hope is in Rebekah, Isaac, Jacob, or Esau, then it's not very well placed. Is our, if our hope is in the people of the past, the people of the present, or the people to come, it's not very well-placed hope. I do appreciate something I read, thinking theologically about the text, by Gordon Wenham. He wrote, he said this, By setting this new step forward in the history of salvation, in the context of such unprincipled behavior by every member of the family, each self-centeredly seeking his or her own interest, the narrator is not simply pointing out the fallibility of God's chosen, 
whose virtues often turn into vices, but, and catch this part, God is reasserting the grace of God. It is His mercy that is the ultimate ground of salvation. And that's theologically what we ought to take from this text. It is God's mercy that is the ground of salvation. The Messiah comes because He's merciful to the family, not because they earned it. Say, I'm much more like Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob, and Esau than I would like to admit. I often want my will to trump God's will. I scheme how to get my way if it means hurting people near me. I'm tempted at times in wanting to lie and deceive either to hide my faults or to get something I want. And I too have had murderous anger in my hearts for those who have betrayed me. My virtues also often turn into vices. I need the grace of God and the mercy of God more than my will and my wits. And grace is God's kindness and provision for me in spite of my guilt or because of my guilt and my sin. That's grace. That God does not treat me as I deserve or I have earned, but treat me, treats me as the only beloved Son of God because of what He deserves and what He has earned. How does God's mercy and grace come to me? Does God simply overlook my vices in, with a folksy, well, He means well, ah, shucks approach? In no way. Ephesians 2 tells us, but God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ, by grace you have been saved. So my hope for eternal life, full forgiveness, a new life and a new love, a true righteousness, is not found from deep within, but from outside, echnostros, from outside of me, a righteousness not my own. That righteousness and forgiveness is found in the God-man, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, the seed of Jacob. Jesus the Christ. As Isaac thought to do what he wanted to do, regardless of God's will, his seed, Jesus Christ, only and completely obeyed the divine will and said, I've come to do the will of my Father. So he obeyed God, where Isaac and I disobey God in his will. And his obedience is graciously given to me as if it were my own. As Rebecca thought to hasten the promise of God and cause it to happen through deceitful means, so Jesus Christ was tempted by Satan to do the same. Forty days of fasting in the wilderness led to Satan calling upon Jesus, God the Son, to act independent of God's redemptive will and to save himself and to give him, now, now take the kingdom, now seize it. Yet Jesus rebuked Satan and said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, identifying himself as the Lord God and refusing to go to take the kingdom except through the receiving of it through the cross. And so he's better than Rebecca. As Esau, betrayed by his Jewish brother, even his own disciple with a kiss, Jesus was betrayed with a kiss, just like Esau was betrayed with Jacob's kiss to Isaac. 
Esau responded with rage and anger and vengeance. So Jesus responded to betrayal and manipulation with mercy. Rather than seek the life of those who murdered him, he died in their place that they might have his life as their own. So he's better than Esau. And as Jacob lied and deceived to gain a great reward, thus Jesus only spoke truth and that openly and gained eternal life for us as our reward, being himself perfect and having no sin, he became sin in our place so that the wrath and justice of God towards sinners could be fully satisfied in his life and death with no deceit. And this is how we read the Old Testament stories. There always is a hero. And that hero is Jesus Christ. He is better. And our faith is failing. Christ alone, he holds us. Please stand for